1 Timothy 5, verses 22 through 25. Give ear to the word of God. Paul writes, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also the good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. The sins of the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray that God might teach us his word this morning. O Lord, our God, uh, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. Uh, Teach us your word today. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. Renew our minds and transform our lives for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, like I said, we're continuing our study in the book of 1 Timothy this morning. If you were here with us last, uh, two weeks ago rather, uh, the previous passage we looked at, uh, Paul has a lot of instructions in a very brief span of verses. Uh, Two weeks ago we looked at what he said in verses 19 to 21, and there he told us how we are to guard the, uh, the reputations of our elders and pastors from unjust accusations of sin and scandal if they were found to be not with two or three witnesses. Uh, Timothy was told, and we are instructed there in those verses to avoid kind of the opposite, you know, the polar opposite extreme errors of partiality and prejudice. We are not to be biased for or against even our elders, in, in a sense, we are to judge justly. Uh, the church is to be careful not to receive or accept accusations without the testimony of two or three witnesses. But if an elder is caught in unrepentant sin and scandal, what does it say? He's to rebuke, be rebuked in the presence of all that the rest may fear, verse 21. Well, here in our passage in verses 22 to 25, Paul cautions Timothy in a similar way. He cautions him and us against rushing into ordaining someone to office in the church. And what he says there is the sins of some men are rather obvious up front. And so, you know, you would think in those cases it would be rather easy to avoid ordaining them to office because, you know, what's the first qualification of an elder? What does he say back in chapter 3? Well, you could say it's the second qualification, right? The first qualification is the man desiring the work. You know, the man has an aspiration to the office, but the, but the, the character qualification, that the kind of the overarching one, is above reproach. That, that an elder must be, what, blameless. Well, if someone's sins are obvious or conspicuous, they are obviously not at that time at least above reproach. And, you know, sadly throughout church history and even in our own day, many churches have failed even that simple requirement in ordaining men to office, who although they may seem gifted, you know, there's reasons people do this. Uh, you've, you've probably seen it in the past. I have certainly seen it in the past as well. Sometimes they'll, they'll find someone who seems exceptionally gifted or who seems exceptionally suited in a worldly manner for success. You know, they're, they're good at their business. They, are, they have contacts, things like that. Uh, but they lack the necessary holiness or godly character that is essential to the calling and work of an elder or pastor. And that never ends well. Maybe you've seen... Some sad examples of how that, that is true in your past church experience. Hopefully you won't ever see that here. But, uh, but Paul says the sins of other men, in verse 24, are not so readily apparent. They're not obvious on the surface, but they, what does he say? They appear 
later. And so, on the other hand, if we ordain a man to office of elder or pastor or even deacon, if we ordain them too quickly without taking the time to examine them thoroughly and they fall into a grievous sin and bring scandal upon the church, then he says in verse 22 that we've essentially, what? We take part in the sins of others if we do that. We, have, we share the blame of that happening when we, when we do that. That's an error to be avoided for the sake of the peace and purity of the church. Now, see how important the office of elder or pastor is to the life and well-being of a church, that the scriptures not only give us detailed instructions about the qualifications for office in 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, but even here he tells us, it's almost like, he shouldn't even need to say this because of the qualifications he mentions back in chapter 3. You know, if he, if he says these qualifications above reproach, you can't determine above reproach in a week or a month or maybe even a year. It takes time. But here, he, because it's such an important topic, he gives us instructions about exercising caution and taking our time in examining a man's character or lack thereof over time before ordaining him to sacred office in the church. So the first thing we see in our text this morning is that Paul talks about laying on of hands. That may sound like a strange thing to some of us, uh, but look at verse 22. He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, what's he referring to by by that? What does he mean by laying hands on someone? This is a reference to the standing practice of the churches down through history of laying hands on a man when he's ordained to office in the church. John Calvin writes the following. He says, the laying on of hands means ordination. He uses the sign, that's the laying on of hands, he uses the sign for the thing signified and forbids him to admit too easily any man uh, who has not been fully examined. The laying on of hands is a sign. In other words, really what he's saying and what we really hold to is in a sense... Uh, you know, some of you, a few of you were here when I was ordained. We had a service here, uh, and the elders that were here, fellow pastors and ruling elders, laid hands on me up front, prayed over me, and set me apart. But what, what, what Calvin is reminding us of is that we don't really ordain anybody. What we do is make, make visible what God, by his grace, has made to be the case invisibly. So we are, the sign is the laying on of hands, but the reality is what God has done in his setting apart such a person for ministry. So he says this is a sign of ordination, and Paul's advice here, his counsel and instruction, is that we are not to admit too easily any who have not been fully examined. It's the practice we see numerous times in Scripture. If you read the book of Acts, you will see a number of times the church doing this exact same thing. In Acts chapter 6, we see that uh, what we believe, many of us believe, is the institution of the office of deacon, And look at Acts 6, 2 through 6. It says, And the twelve, that's the apostles, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, that's the church, right? And said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And here it says, verse 6, 
These they set before the apostles, and they did what? They prayed and laid their hands on them. They prayed and laid their hands on them. Notice, you know, a couple things in that text. Uh, how were they to discern those whom the Lord had set apart for that ministry? They didn't just say, eeny, meeny, miny, mo." They didn't say, pick seven guys, pick whoever you want. We don't care. Just, you know, and, you know, we might be tempted to do that. If you remember the story, remember there were the widow, some of the widows in the church were being neglected in the daily distribution of, of food and their necessities. And so some of them, you know, the Hellenists, the Greeks, were complaining that the, the Jewish widows were getting kind of preferential treatment because the church, this is in the early days of the church, and you had Jews and Gentiles coming together as the church. And so they complained. And so what did the apostles do? They could have said, uh, you know, if they had an ego, they said, well, you know, our job's too important not really what they're saying, but it kind of is. But they're saying, just pick somebody else to do it. That's not what they said. They said, pick out from among you. You know, you guys want this done? Guess who's going to do it? You. You know, so be careful what you ask for the church to do, right? Uh, pick out from among you seven men full of uh, men of good repute, of good reputation, above reproach, right? Full of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and of wisdom. So character quality matters even there. And then what did they do? Even though this was a ministry so-called of, of serving tables, of what we might think of as menial labor in serving others, they prayed for them, they laid hands upon them, and set them apart to ministry. We see the same thing later on in the book of Acts with Paul and Barnabas. When they were sent off on their missionary journeys in Acts 13, 1 through 3, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch, Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then it says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So even Paul and Barnabas uh, were were prayed over and had hands laid upon them and setting them apart to ministry. So that practice is still honored in many churches today, including our own denomination and many other reformed denominations. Now, the, So the first thing he does is, tells, is mentions that, but then he says that we are not to ordain in haste. The first thing Paul does is caution us here about uh, when it comes to ordaining a man to the office of elder or pastor is that we should not ordain a person, a man in haste, we should not be in a hurry. Now, notice he doesn't give us, we, don't, we would all like this, Some people like me, we would love it if Paul would have said a year. Give us the, give us the actual, define what not in a haste means. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say two years, one year, six months, three. He just says don't do it in haste. He expects us to use our best judgment and discernment. Um, now, yeah, it's, it's one of those things he says uh, there, the importance of the office of elder or pastor, I think, alone should teach us that kind of caution. The more serious we take the office, the less in a rush we're going to be. Now, the fact that Paul has to say this to Timothy at all, I think, suggests that there will be temptations to take shortcuts at times. You know, Paul wasn't just writing things to fill up the page. So when he says, don't ordain a man in haste or don't lay hands in haste, I think that indicates there are temptations at times to do that, to take a shortcut. When it comes to calling a man to pastoral ministry or the ministry of an elder, um, this process is often in many ways cut far too short. Now, 
I, I thought about this when I was getting ready to preach the, to get rid to this sermon, put the sermon together. I thought, I thought about Rob, and, and I said, you know, it doesn't mean you have to take 10 years like we did with Rob. Uh, that wasn't any indication of we had any doubts about Rob. We just, I'm, your pastor is just slow. Uh, so we won't take 10 years, Lord willing, for the next one. Apologies to Rob. Uh, he's been doing the work without the badge for a long time, and uh, we're happy to have him here. But anyway, we need to take our time, maybe not 10 years, but take our time in that kind of, of process. And, you know, think about the way that, that churches often pursue candidates for the ministry, uh, for the pastorate. You know, think about how you might, maybe you've seen this done. Some of you, I think, have been on pastoral search committees in the past, possibly. You know, sometimes that man might preach one or two sermons, have just the barest of opportunity for the church to get to know him in a superficial manner at best, and that's it. You know, sometimes distance comes into play here. You know, we, we call somebody from two states over that you don't get the time to get to know, and so you're kind of stuck looking into their references as if they were being hired as an employee of some kind. And I think, you know, that some of that is a necessary evil. You don't always have someone local that can uh, fit the bill, but it's not necessarily the healthiest practice for the church or for the pastor. Uh, Albert Martin, some of you might know who that is. He has uh, recently released a, a trilogy, a three-volume set on pastoral ministry, pastoral theology. He writes this briefly. He says, The practice of having a man preach a few trial sermons without some other knowledge of his gifts and his character is dangerous business not only to the church, but to the man himself. It's not a good idea. Some of you have seen that happen and seen it blow up in the church's face and in the man's face. Now, Paul tells us why we aren't to be in a hurry here also. In verse 22, he says that we are not to lay hands in haste, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. I think the logic he's saying there seems pretty clear. He says, you know, basically he's saying if you rush an unqualified man into office and then he falls into sin and scandal, we share in that guilt. We've put him in that situation, that position for that to happen in the first place. And so when Paul speaks of taking part in the sins of others, um, he uses the same Greek word that's often translated as having fellowship with. Koinonia, maybe you've heard that word before. That's the word he uses. He's, he's really saying you're sharing, you're fellowshipping in his sin and scandal when you, when you do that. You're sharing, you have a share of that guilt if you rush someone into office. Now, sin and scandal happen even in the best of churches at times. Uh, sometimes there's not much that you can do to prevent it. Paul's not saying if you take your time, nothing will ever happen. Right? He's, he's not saying that your church will be sin-proof or your pastor or elders will be scandal-proof. That is not what he's saying. But that he is saying you'll reduce a lot of that if you just do what the Bible tells you to do in these things. You know, There's not always something you can do to prevent it. In those cases, it's not our fault. You don't share in their sins. But you know, let us not test the Lord or try to be wiser than God by taking shortcuts and calling and ordaining a man to ministry or office in the church without taking the time to examine them according to the standards of God's word. Well, the next thing Paul says here in our text has caused some confusion, some disagreement, and even speculation among Bible scholars and commentators. Look at verse 23. He says to Timothy, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, the confusion uh, arises over the context of the verse. You know, in fact, many commentators say it just seems out of place. They don't, they, don't, they don't say that Paul didn't write it. They just say it seems like 
you know, in our day, when you have, you know, computers and things to write your letters with, you can do something called copying and pasting. Many of you have done that. You know, you, when I've worked on a sermon before, I've worked on a sermon and been writing it and realized something I wrote seemed better suited to be in a different part of the sermon. And I'll copy it and paste it and move it around. Well, Paul didn't have that. But they act as if, you know, as if Paul was kind of copying and pasting and misplaced this verse here. Like, Paul, what are you talking about? That has nothing to do with what goes before or goes after it, right? I think that's the problem. In fact, if you notice, if you have an ESV, now the punctuation and the parentheses and all that, they're not in the original Greek. But in your ESV, it's marked off in a parenthesis, isn't it? Because they're saying, we don't know how this fits, you know. But he says it. We don't know why it fits here. But uh, So they put it that way. I think that's what they're indicating there. Um, how, how does this counsel to Timothy fit in with what Paul says before and after in our text? I think the key, if there is one, is to be found at the end of the previous verse where he tells Timothy, keep yourself what? Keep yourself pure. Now, I think that probably made him think of this next thing that he talks about when it comes to wine. I think when he talks about keeping himself pure, he's talking about not sharing in the sins of others by premature ordination of a man to office. But I think that may have led Paul to give Timothy this counsel that seems like a parenthetical statement or admonition that he should refrain or should not refrain from the use of wine as if that were the standard of biblical purity. Keep yourself pure. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean don't ever drink wine. I think that's what he is getting at. In fact, even here in the context of a concern for maintaining the reputation of an elder or minister of a gospel, uh, Paul openly recommended Timothy in a public document to drink or use a little wine. He says, no longer drink only water. The fact that he says that probably indicates that that's what Timothy was tempted to do for the sake of, of the appearance of purity. I, I'll just drink water. People people see me. I'm a public figure. Uh, he's the, the protege of Paul the Apostle. And so he, he was doing that, and Paul says not to do that. You know, uh, Possibly other elders or pastors, we don't know. Uh, you know. You can't reverse engineer scripture and figure out what was the cause behind everything. But, you know, maybe perhaps other elders or pastors that Timothy knew of had fallen into scandal through drunkenness. And so Timothy thought, okay, I'm just going to nip that in the bud and have no possible way. And Paul says, no, don't, don't do that. The fact that Paul instructs Timothy to drink wine, a little bit of wine, should give us, I think, some pause. Drunkenness is a sin. Uh, no one tell you different. You know, I, I, I have noticed at times in our day that, uh, some of our Reformed brethren uh, use their liberty a little bit to the extreme and drink more than they should, and that's not, uh, that is not permissible. The scriptures are clear on the point that, that drunkenness is a sin. Paul himself says in Ephesians 5.18, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So it's, it's a waste, it's debauchery to be drunk with wine. But we should be careful not to add commandments to scripture that aren't there. The fact that Paul, think about this, this letter to Timothy was not a private correspondence. It's in our scriptures, and Paul knew it was going to be read to the church as well and passed down through the years and passed around the churches. Paul, the fact that Paul publicly and openly instructs a pastor and a high-profile pastor. You know, we might think of, we think of high-profile, we think of these megachurch pastors in our day. Well, Timothy was being discipled by Paul. 
It doesn't, I mean, anything Timothy does wrong makes Paul look bad. And what does Paul tell him to do? He openly counsels him against just drinking water. He tells him to drink a little wine. Uh, and the fact that he does that should caution us, I think, against undue strictness in this matter. We shouldn't forget that the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper with what? With wine. It was not Welch's. It was not grape juice. So wine or alcohol is not inherently sinful. But Paul does say one little word there, doesn't he? A little wine. It's hard to get drunk on a little bit of wine, right? He doesn't say drink all you want. He says drink a little wine. Now, Timothy wasn't getting drunk on a little bit of wine, but he says, notice he adds, this was for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on YouTube or TV. Uh, but there is a medicinal element to what Paul is telling him here. Even in our own day, you might know many doctors recommend uh, wine or alcohol in moderation for its health benefits. In a similar way, uh, you might have heard maybe some of you used apple cider vinegar for your digestion. It's the same concept, the same idea. Uh, vinegar, wine, vine, the same, same root word uh, there. So, you know, if you think about that, he is, he is telling Timothy as a pastor, and as an elder, uh, not only to use a little bit of wine, but it's also this also has to do with, with medical things. He's telling him, take care of your health. It's something a pastor and elder should be conscious of, of doing. Well, verses 24 to 25, Paul gives further explanation why we are not to be in a rush to ordain a man to office. In the church, look at verses 24 to 25. He says, the sins of some people uh, are conspicuous going before them to judgment uh, but the sins of others appear later, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, first thing is that very first sentence, the sins of some people, the word there should read men. Now, it's true in general, isn't it? The sins of some people, men and women both sin, and some of our sins, men and women alike, they're obvious. They go before us to judgment, and others aren't so obvious but the context here and the word he uses is literally men. Why? Because he's talking about elders. And so I'm not a, not a fan of, of changing it to the generic people there. It should say the sins of some men are conspicuous. You can make, we're all big enough uh, grown-ups that we can make the application to all people after that. But he's talking about officers, elders in the church. Uh, Paul tells us another reason for patience in these things is that the sins of some men are conspicuous. They're obvious. They're, they're, they're openly evident to all. And they precede them to judgment. It's, it's like their sins are a forerunner galloping ahead of them on a horse on the way to judgment. You see it coming. It's obvious. But the sins of others, other men, it says, appear later. And so what is he saying? First impressions can be very deceiving, but time will reveal most things. If we, give, if we take the time, uh, these things will come to light. Likewise, Paul says, on the other hand, the good works of other men are also conspicuous at times, but not always. If you take your time, both the good and the bad will be made clearly manifest. Sometimes a bad first impression of someone gives you the wrong impression, just as much as sometimes a good impression on the first impression can do. The first impressions can be deceiving for good and for bad, and we need to be careful in both regards. If you think about it, there's a positive and a negative aspect to Paul's instructions here. Sometimes a person can make a very good first impression, but later on it proves to not be the right impression. Uh, in the same way, other times, you know, you might, 
We've probably all done this. You meet someone, whether it's church-related or not, and you get a bad impression, and that impression sticks, and you kind of have a you know, negative view of them, and over time you realize you were wrong. This person isn't the bad person you thought they were. Well, Paul is telling Timothy when it comes to office in the church to, to think about these things long and hard as well. So patience here, as in most things, what is the saying? Patience is a virtue. That's true here as well. Look at First Timothy, First Corinthians, rather four, verse five. Paul says, "Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each will receive his commendation from God." So we don't want to judge things before the time. We need to be careful and take our time. And uh, you know, in conclusion, you know, most most professing Christians. Just obviously, most of us will never become elders or pastors in the church. Uh, that's good and that's right. Uh, many of you are probably very relieved to hear that, that you're not going to be a pastor or elder and have to stand up in front of the whole group. Um, most of us shouldn't want it to be otherwise. But, uh, you know, but at the same time, when you read a text like this, I think the temptation for most of us or some of us is to think, okay, pastor, this passage is about elders and pastors, so that's not me, so I can kick back in the easy chair. and not this, this one's not for me. This is for a relative few. You know, preach to yourself. You're the pastor. Preach to Rob. He's the elder uh, candidate here. And so everybody else is off the hook. But that would be wrong. Uh, that wouldn't be the right way uh, to think about it. Uh, that just because you're not in office or seeking office in the church, that this doesn't apply to you. Uh, the same principles apply to every Christian in a general way. Remember those, we looked at back in chapter 3, the qualifications for an elder being above reproach. Other than the, the ability to teach, all of those godly character qualifications for an elder should be the thing that every Christian seeks to follow. Every believer in Christ should seek with all their heart to be blameless, to be above reproach and glorify Christ in how they live. Uh, but in a, in a general way, the same things that Paul says in this passage apply to everyone else. When he says, uh, you know, kind of in passing that some men's sins are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but other men's sins follow behind them and are revealed later. Even so, if you're if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're hearing uh, my the sermon, if you're listening and you're not a believer in Christ, um, your sins may be of the obvious kind. They may be the kind that everybody sees, everybody knows, or they may be the not so obvious kind. They may, you know, sometimes we can we can maintain a respectable appearance even while. Uh, indulging in sin and iniquity behind closed doors. Um, but God, does God not see all these things? We might, everybody else, you know, you can fool some people all the time or whatever the saying goes, but God sees all things like an open book. Uh, nothing can be hidden from God, our kids' catechism says. Uh, Numbers 32.23 says this, Behold, you've sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. All our sins are as an open book before God, and God will not be mocked. So if you're still in your sin and unbelief, if you're not a believer in Christ, uh, I ask you this morning, turn from your sins, turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ, and he will save you from your sin. You can only have peace and reconciliation with God by his grace through faith in Christ alone. If you're already a believer in Christ, which I trust all of you are, uh, but you're engaging in an unrepentant sin of some kind, whether openly or in secret, uh, my, my admonition to you this morning is uh, to repent. Renew your repentance before God. Confess your sin 
before him, turn from it that the Lord might bring healing and restoration and peace. Then the smile of God will once again shine upon you. You will know the blessing of his reward for his obedient children who sincerely, even if imperfectly, follow him uh, and obey his commands, walking by faith in Christ. Uh, May the Lord Jesus Christ be pleased to bless and guide us as his church, that we might do his will in all these things, even in discerning uh, in the future those whom God has set apart to serve as pastors, elders, and deacons in his church. To God be the glory in his church forever. Amen.